Being lost can be scary. Being lost can be scary. When Susie and I were driving to South Padre Island for our anniversary a few weeks ago, I wasn't paying attention, and we missed an exit, and we ended up at the U.S.-Mexico border. We didn't really know what to do, so we just drove up to the booth and told the border agent that we were trying to get to South Padre but missed a turn. And he said with a laugh, you aren't the first ones to make this mistake. And he kindly and graciously helped us back our car up and turn around and, and head in the right direction. I don't know if we technically made it into Mexico or not, but it would have been my first trip. And I was looking forward. I was actually excited. I was like, we're going to get to make it to Mexico. But they didn't actually let us go through the booth. We had to back up and go out. So when it dawned on me that we were lost, you probably have been there in your car, or maybe you're walking, or maybe you've been on a nature hike or something, and the moment comes and you realize you're lost, and you don't know where you are, you don't know how you got there, and there's a moment of panic. Your thoughts start to swirl, and you start to try to figure out what to do, and it's scary can be scary for a few moments or longer, depending on how serious, how seriously lost you are. Being lost can be scary. Now, we're in a sermon series on 1 John, and the main point of this letter is to help Christians not feel lost, to remind Christians that they aren't indeed lost, which has the result of helping us not be afraid. If being lost makes us afraid, then knowing that we're found and not lost should increase our faith and our hope and our confidence and our assurance. That's what John's doing in this letter. He's trying to help Christians know that we're not lost, that we're saved, we're found, we're headed to heaven. He's writing to churches that were plagued by these false teachers who were upsetting the faith of true Christians by teaching false things about Christ, which was hindering their confidence that they were indeed walking in the truth. Perhaps you've had that experience where you know, you're a Christian, but then someone starts saying something, you're like, I don't know if that's true. Kind of sounds Christian-y, but maybe, you, maybe it's an encounter with a Jehovah's Witness or something of that nature. And you start to wonder, well, am I really a Christian? Am I really believing the truth? Am I wrong? Are they right? That kind of thing is what was happening with these churches. Their faith was upset by these false teachers who were coming in and saying false things about Christ. So John writes this letter to encourage them to say, no, you're not lost. You're in the truth. They're the ones who are lost. Be assured. You can be confident. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. You have the anointing of the Holy One, as we'll see this morning. The way he does this encouraging work, by the way, is giving three tests. I've said this. Continue to say it because it's really the main thing going on in the book. He does it by giving them three tests by which to discern the falseness of the false teachers. The moral test, the relational test, and the doctrinal test. The moral test says that if you don't obey God, you don't know God. The relational test says that if you don't love God's people, you don't know God. The doctrinal test says that if you don't trust in God's Son... You aren't God's people. 
So John gives them these three tests because he wants these churches to see that the false teachers weren't obeying God, weren't loving God's people, and weren't trusting in God's Son. So these false teachers should be removed or ignored. They shouldn't be trusted. He wants the churches on the flip side of that. He wants the churches to know and be assured and be confident in the fact that they are obeying God. Not perfectly, but that they are obeying, they are loving, they are trusting in God's Son. So they can rest in the assurance that they have eternal life. That's what John is doing in 1 John. He wants us to know that we aren't lost so we don't have to be afraid. He wants us to know as Christians, as genuine Christians, we don't have to be afraid because we're not lost. We're found. Now in our text this morning, there's some crazy stuff that's said. By crazy, I mean interesting and unique. Okay? So find chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 18 through 27. I'll read the text in just a moment, moment, but there's talk in this text of the last days, the Antichrist, the anointing of the Holy One. It even says that we don't need anyone to teach us. And I'm about to teach you the Bible for like at least 40 minutes, maybe less. <laughs> Unlikely. So what's going on here? This is not about to be, you know, some kind of big sermon on the end times, by the way. But he's talking about the last days, the Antichrist, the anointing of the Holy One. No one, we don't need anyone to teach us. What is John doing? Well, he's doing something really simple. As I've already said, and he's doing this, that, that same thing I've already talked about right here. He's encouraging Christians. He's reminding Christians. He's telling God's people again that God will protect them. He's reminding God's people that God is in them and they are with God, that they're not lost, that they're found, that they're safe. They're hearing different ideas coming from different voices. They have angst and doubt and anxiety about what's really real. So John writes this interesting, somewhat confusing text to remind them that God will protect them. So, Here's how we can summarize these verses, 18 through 27. These verses can be summarized like this. False teachers are trying to deceive the churches, but true believers have been anointed by the Holy One and are therefore safe. That's the summary of these, these verses. False teachers are trying to deceive the churches, but true believers have been anointed by the Holy One and are therefore safe. The main point, again, John is saying that God will protect His people. God will preserve His people. God will never abandon His people. So I want to read this text and then ask two sets of questions. Here they are. I'll give them to you up front. First, we'll ask, who is the Antichrist and what did they teach? Who is the Antichrist and what did they teach? Then secondly, who are Christians and what do they have? Who are Christians and what do they have? Who's the Antichrist and what did they teach? Who are Christians and what do they have? 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out 
that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Number one, who is the Antichrist and what did they teach? Verse 18, John mentions the Antichrist. It is the last hour, which is another way of saying the the end of the ages have come upon us with Jesus' coming. I'm not going to get into that too much more. Various authors of the New Testament use similar language. We're in the end times, meaning that when Jesus came, He inaugurated the kingdom of God. He brought... He, he, begun to brought, is that a word? Began to bring <laughs> the kingdom so that the last days have started. And we're still in them 2,000 years later as we wait for His second and final coming. So it's the last hour, verse 18, but then He says that in this, we know it's the last hour because Antichrist is coming. Many Antichrists have come. Later in chapter 4, verse 3, He says the spirit of Antichrist has come. So who or what is the Antichrist? <clears throat> well, Jesus, Paul, and John all talk about a powerful end-time figure who's opposed to God. Jesus, you might remember in Matthew 24, Mark 13, talks about false prophets. He also talks about the abomination of desolation. Uh, then Paul talks about a figure, uh, the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness. John in Revelation talks about the beast in Revelation, I believe it's 12, the beast who will come, wrecking havoc on the earth. So Jesus, Paul, and John all talk about powerful end-time figures who are opposed to God. But there was a distinction in early Christian tradition. There was a distinction between these great figures who appear near the end and lesser figures whose influence is already in the world and being felt in the churches. For example, Paul talks about the great end-time figure, the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, the son of destruction. He's talking about a singular person who will set themselves up against all religions and proclaim himself to be God. This person will come, Paul says, by the activity of Satan. He says they'll do signs and wonders and deceive many people. And they'll likely come at the very end of time because Paul says that Jesus will kill this person with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing, bring him to nothing at his appearance. So the figure there in 2 Thessalonians 2 is a real person who will come at the end of time. Some would call that 
figure, the Antichrist. Paul doesn't use that word. Jesus doesn't use that word. Only John uses the word Antichrist, by the way. And he seems to be not referring to the great end-time figure that we usually call the Antichrist. What John's doing, what John's referring to, I think, are those lesser figures who are already in the world. Notice he says in verse 18, many Antichrists have come. They have come. 2,000 years ago, he writes this, they have already come. And the Antichrist, according to John, are many. Many Antichrists have come. Not just one. Second John, if you just flip a few pages to your right, Second John 7, he mentions them again. Second John 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. These deceivers, these teachers, false prophets, Jesus would call them, are out in the world, there's lots of them, and they're denying basic Christian doctrine. Now the interesting thing that John tells us in verse 19, where did they come from? Where did they come from? Look at verse 19. They went out from us. They went out from us. What's the us? The churches. They went out from the church, but he says they were not of us. They went out from us, but they weren't of us. They went out from the church, but weren't of the church. They started in the church, but left the church because they were never truly converted to Christ and therefore true members of Christ's church. If they were truly converted to Christ, they would have continued in the church of Christ. But they were not of Christ. They were not of the church. They were not of God's people, so they left. They came out of the church. But also, make no mistake about it, they were inspired by the evil one. They were human teachers, but behind them were the forces of darkness making war against God and His people. Our enemy is a deceiver, has been from the beginning, a liar, a twister of the truth. And so these teachers, these antichrists, were driven, animated by the evil one. Now, just to be clear, too, in verse 19, where he says they went out from us, but they were not of us, so they left the church. Uh, Let's just remember that in the first century, there was only the church. There was the Christian church. There were a growing number of spinoff groups, heretical groups, that would call themselves Christians, this is why one reason why we read creeds around here, come to Mason's class and then Jared's class the next few weeks, training class. Um, they, the church over the centuries developed a need, a real strong need to clarify exactly what they believed, what Christians have always believed, what the Bible teaches, because lots of spin-off groups were teaching false things. But there was only one church. So when John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us, He's not saying they left First Baptist Church to go to Second Baptist Church. He's not saying they left one evangelical church to go to another evangelical church. He's saying they left the true church and then started their own thing based on their own ideas. That's way different. That's way different from from us moving our membership to another gospel-preaching church. That's not what they were doing. They were doing something entirely different and entirely evil. 
starting their own thing based on their own ideas. And John tells us what these ideas were. So that's who the Antichrist is. What did they teach? Well, verse 22, he says, John says that the Antichrist, these teachers, denied that Jesus is the Christ. They deny the Father and the Son. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So the Antichrist, these teachers and their teaching, deny that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the one God would send to fulfill all the Old Testament promises for a deliverer, a savior of God's people, someone who would rescue God's people, defeat God's enemies, usher in God's kingdom. They're denying that Jesus is that one. They're also denying that He's the Son of God, very God of very God. They're denying the Messiahship and the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. They're denying central and non-negotiable elements of the Christian faith. The kinds of things we read every week in our, in our recitation of the creeds. They're denying these non-negotiable elements of Christian doctrine. Now, they would have said, no, we're not. <laughs> they would have said, no, we're not denying Christ. We're not denying the Son. Many today would say, no, we're not denying Christ. We're not denying the Son. But this is why we need to study doctrine and theology, by the way. We need to know what we mean when we say Christ. What do you mean when you say Jesus is the Son of God? Those words have meaning when you use them. What do you mean when you say Son of God or Christ? The Bible certainly has meaning for those things. So we can't be content with our slogans like, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. What do we mean by those words? Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons would say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. What do they mean? Well, they mean something very different about Jesus than historical biblical Christians mean. Even Muslims would say they don't deny Christ because He's in their holy book. But they do deny Christ because their version of Christ is not the real Christ. We need to know doctrine. We need to know theology. We need to read our Bibles and not be content with catchphrases and know how to articulate. What if we could all articulate our beliefs as well as the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons we've debated? They've spent hours studying what they believe and can articulate it well. But we mean very different things though we may use lots of the same words. So these antichrists, these teachers, are denying the divinity, the messiahship of Jesus. Verse 26, notice verse 26. It says that these antichrists, these false teachers, were trying to deceive. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So that they didn't like accidentally start doing these things. It's not like they were teaching a training class and accidentally said something heretical. I don't know if that's ever happened around here. It probably has. It's not like they were just teaching a class in the church and accidentally misspoke. No, they were trying to deceive. They'd heard the truth and then decided that newer ideas were better than the truth, and so they started to promote those ideas within the churches. They grew dissatisfied with what the church was teaching, and they went after a new thing. They're trying to injure the mothers who gave them birth because they loved a new thing, a new teaching. By the way, if, 
if it sounds new, it's usually wrong. <laughs> okay? If you hear new things from this pulpit, things you've never heard before, please come and let me or Jared know. We're committed around here to the old, old story. The old, old story of Jesus and His glory. These antichrists or false teachers were dissatisfied with the old, old story. They, they wanted something new. They went after the new thing. And then they started actively trying to persuade others to join them in their new thing. And this still happens today. As you have seen probably in the news or on social media, maybe even in your own friendships, as people start to deconstruct their faith. People are becoming ex-evangelicals. They're denying the faith that they were taught in their churches and by their families. They're saying that the churches they grew up in, the families they grew up in, are wrong and they're right. They start denying basic Christian ideas like the sinfulness of sin, the narrowness of truth, the goodness of God's design for gender and sexuality. Now, it must be said, no church is perfect. No church gets it right on everything. Think about that for a minute. We are wrong somewhere. I don't know where, but we are because we're not perfect. We're not perfect. We just aren't. No church has it all right. Amen? As long as we have the gospel right, we'll be okay. There are lots of churches who are teaching unbiblical things. There are real instances of spiritual abuse that turn people away from the faith. But many times people leave churches simply because they don't believe what the church has always believed. Something shifts in them. Something changes in their hearts and minds. But instead of just honestly admitting that, and humbly leaving, they often will tell their stories as if they're the hero and their church is the villain. Samuel James makes this observation in his recent review of John John Ward's book, Testimony. Uh, Subtitle of his book is Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. So James, reviewing Ward's book, writes this, Quote, many of us raised in evangelical subcultures must admit that we are very different people today than we were while living with our parents, attending that Sunday school class, or sitting under that youth pastor. Many of us will look back at the things we were taught and see problems, some minor, others serious. Yet this transformation shouldn't leave us with contempt for the people and places of our past. Ward's book certainly showcases the power of the evangelical transformation memoir. His experiences of Hypocrisy and cynical church cultures will be familiar to many. His frustration with his family and those who mentored him is relatable. Many will see themselves following a similar trajectory and testimony, his book, Testimony, will give them words to describe what they had felt but not named. Yet, the peril, James says, the peril of this genre is overwhelmingly present as well. More than any theological or political point, I, Samuel James, came away from testimony freshly aware of my own tendency to see myself in the purest light, to apply grace to my own journey, but to deny it to others. Indeed, this is the peril of all our testimonies. We can see even our own lives only as through a mirror, dimly. Most of us will not publish a spiritual memoir, but in a way, we are all writing it every day. The the church needs these stories. He says, but our stories need the church too. 
when we look into our lives for reasons to feel better about ourselves, we will tend to stare straight past the mercy, the forgiveness, and the love that God pours into us through others. Instead, we can see our testimonies the way Christ sees them, as a vindication not of our wisdom, but of His glory. End quote. In other words, many people will leave the church or leaving the church today because they want to be the hero of their story and make their families and their churches the villain. Because they see themselves in the purest light and apply grace to themselves but to no one else. Not understanding that they are who they are because of other people. That's not always why people leave the church, the true church. Those who aren't in the church will find some reason to leave the church eventually. Sometimes they'll end up as agnostics or atheists or transition to Mormonism or some other religion. Sometimes they'll start believing their own version of the Christian faith that better fits their own wants and the whims of their culture. The good news, I hope it's encouraging to you, is that this has been happening for 2,000 years. People are making lots of money over this deconstruction thing, deconstructing your faith thing happening right now, writing books and articles and such. But people have been deconstructing their faith for 2,000 years. They went out from us, but they were not of us. While many have walked away, I hope we're also encouraged as we look around the room, many more have stayed. Many more have stayed. Why don't we do this real quick? Just look around at the people next to you. Do it. It's going to be awkward. It'll be fine. You may not know them. Yeah. Look who stayed. Look who stayed. Look who stayed. John is writing to encourage us who've stayed in the church but who are struggling. We're struggling. We have a cacophony of ideas swirling around us in the air of our culture and in the quietness of our own thoughts. Our desires are all out of whack. We're struggling to know whether this, this gospel, this Christianity thing is true or good or beautiful. But you're here. We're here. You stayed. Now, what John does, the other thing John does in this passage, number two, is he tells us who we are. He tells those who've stayed, true Christians, true believers, he tells us who we are and what we have. So we've seen who the Antichrists are, who, who the false teachers are, what they're teaching. But then there's this contrast in the passage of who the true teachers, the true believers are. Who are we? Who are true Christians? What do we have? What is it that keeps us keeping on? Well, he says a lot in this passage about us, about Christians. I'm going to go through this list a little bit at a time. He says in verse 19 that we're the ones who continue with the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued, key word, continued with us. True Christians continue with the church. True Christians never give up on the church. Never. Jesus says, if you remain to the end, you will be saved. True Christians never give up on the church. They may have disagreements or conflicts. They may even have to change churches. But they never leave the true church. 
They love the truth, and they love the people who love the truth, so they keep going with God's people no matter what. No matter what, they continue. Then, John says in verse 20 that true believers, the true church, are those who've been, look at verse 20, anointed by the Holy One. Anointed by the Holy One. Uses this language again in verse 27. His anointing, the anointing you have received from Him abides in you. His His anointing teaches you about everything. We've been anointed by the Holy One. What does that mean? Well, another form of the word for anointed is usually used to refer to Jesus being anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. Like at His baptism, God anointed, covered, filled Jesus with His Holy Spirit. It's therefore best to understand these passages, the anointing here as a reference to the Holy Spirit. So when he says you've been anointed by the Holy One, what he means is you've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been given the Holy Spirit. We don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit in our, in our circles, but the Spirit's presence and purpose is so massively important. The Spirit was given to us to deepen our communion with Christ, to create and grow our fellowship with Jesus. Yes, the Spirit gives gifts. Yes, the Spirit convicts us of sin and grows us in sanctification and Christ-likeness. But the main reason we have the Spirit is so that we can commune with Jesus. J.I. Packer in his book, Keep, Keep in Step with the Spirit, is really good on this point. He says that the Spirit's, quote, post-Pentecostal task is essentially that of mediating the presence, word, and activity of the enthroned Christ. So Ephesians 1 says that when we hear the truth, believe the gospel, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of all that is to come. What Packer is saying, what the New Testament lays out, is that while we wait to see Jesus, the Spirit brings Him to us and us to Him. Could there be any better gift? We have the Spirit of Christ, meaning we have access to the enthroned, risen, and reigning Christ anytime, anywhere, through the Word, through prayer, through the church of the the Lord Jesus Christ. We can commune with the risen Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you ever pray for the Holy Spirit to come and help you know and experience Jesus Christ? You're like, John, we're not a Pentecostal church. Oh, yes, we are. Maybe not in the sense that you're thinking, but we desperately need the Holy Spirit. We can't see. The eyes of our hearts won't see the beauty of Jesus Christ without Him. Because He's invisible to us. He's in heaven, not on earth anymore. So praise the Father for sending the Spirit so we can see the Son. And the way we do it is through the Bible and through prayer and through the church. We've been anointed by the Holy One. We have the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 21 next, he says, Christians know the truth. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. You know it. True believers know the truth. 
not in just an intellectual abstract, like not like you you've heard you've heard some ideas and you agree with some ideas, but in a more relational, intimate kind of way. You've received, understood, and embraced the truth about God, about yourself, and about Jesus. You understand in your head and in your heart that God created you, but that you've sinned against God, and that Jesus Christ and His life, death, and resurrection is your only hope to be made right with God. And that through faith and repentance, you can and are made right with God. You don't just know these things intellectually. You've embraced them. You love them. You believe them with all your heart. You know the truth. And this knowledge, this knowledge hasn't just filled your head. It's changed your life. Then he says in verse 25, Christians, another thing Christians have. Christians, I love this verse. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Eternal life. Maybe the best verse in the Bible, I don't know. Is there anything better than the fact that you and I can live forever in Jesus Christ? Turn to John chapter 5 quickly. I want you to see something Jesus says there and something John's kind of alluding to here. He's already talked about in John, 1 John chapter 1. John chapter 5, verse 25 to 29. We'll see that believers have eternal life now and will get eternal life, uh, eternal life later. We have it and we'll get it. So, John 5, <clears throat> John 5, 25. Truly, truly, this is Jesus talking. I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father... Oh, excuse me. Let's start in verse 24. I missed a verse. Back to 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life currently. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who hear, excuse me, all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus says, we've already passed from death to life, verse 24, and one day at the resurrection, will rise out of our graves, and those who've done good will have life. So we have life, and we'll be given life. Eternal life is ours now, and will be ours more fully later. Back to 1 John 2, 25. This is the promise He made to us, eternal life. Meaning the eternal, the very life of God, the only kind of life God has, because He's eternal. God's very life is yours now and will be more fully yours later at the resurrection. This is a beautiful promise. I wonder if you ever think about heaven. I wonder if you, I don't know about you, but on hard days when I, my, I can't seem to stop my anxieties from swirling, just trying to get my thoughts towards heaven seems to help. This is His promise to you, brothers and sisters, eternal life. In other words, this life is not all there is. 
the swirling will stop. The trials will end. Sin and Satan and death will be no more. The only thing we will know, the only thing we will know is life, 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 life. Forever. Eternal life. This is what Christians have. They're people who believe this promise. Eternal life. Now the final thing that we have, that we are, it says in verse 27, look at verse 27, the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. You're like, amen. Wrap it up, John. It says right there, we have no need that anyone should teach us. Well, this is related to, right there, the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. So it's related to the anointing, the Holy Spirit that we have that teaches us everything. As Charles read from Jeremiah 31 earlier, this is what Jeremiah said would happen under the new covenant. God said He'd put His law, His word within His people. He'd write it on our hearts. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So in the new covenant, God puts His word and His spirit in His people so that we know Him intimately and personally, we'd want to obey Him. He'd be inside of us, not just around us. So true believers have the truth about Jesus already engraved on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We have the law of God, the Word of God written on our hearts so that we want to obey God even if we don't do it perfectly. We want to do it more and more. So John's point is you don't need any new teaching. You don't need these antichrists. You don't need these false teachers. You've been anointed with the Holy One. You're part of God's new covenant people. You have the Spirit and the Word inside of you. So you don't need anything new. This verse can't mean that human teachers of the gospel are all bad or it would contradict other parts of the New Testament where it literally says that the enthroned and risen and reigning Christ has given the church pastor-teachers and the gift of teaching. How could that be possible if this means we don't need teachers? So if you think that, well, I just have my Bible, that's all I need. I don't really need the church or any pastors or elders or teachers. You know, I don't need to read good books for my edification, my growth in the faith. Well, let's say you're misguided. Teachers are infallible, but they're also a gift, according to the Bible. Infallible, excuse me, fallible. <laughs> Thank you for that look, Lauren. I knew, I was like, wait a second, not right. It's sometimes heresy, you never know. Um, Teachers are fallible, fallible, and a gift, and a gift. What John is saying is that you don't need a teacher to know, you don't have to come to me to get to God. You've been anointed by the Holy One. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word written on your heart. You've been born again. And it wasn't by me. And it wasn't by you. And it wasn't by the church you grew up in or your parents. God Himself made you His. Therefore, you don't need human teachers for salvation. But I think the New Testament does teach that we need human teachers for growth in Christ. So what do Christians have? Well, what we have is simple. We have the Word and we have the Spirit. 
We know the truth, verse 21. We have been anointed by the Holy One, verse 20. This doesn't negate action. It doesn't mean we sit on our hands and just come to church and everything works out. Just because we have these things doesn't mean we do nothing. There are only two imperatives, two commands in this passage. Verse 27, excuse me, verse 24. John says, let the word abide in you. That's a command. That's an imperative in the original language. In verse 27, you abide in the Spirit. The very end of that verse, abide in Him. That's a command. That's an imperative. Let the Word abide in you. Let it live in you. And you live in the Spirit. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ abide in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Isn't it interesting the connection there between the Word of Christ, the Spirit of God, and singing? If you're like, I'm not really into singing, it seems that the early church was into singing, and they saw it as a key part of what we do as a local church. It's one of the ways we teach one another, and it's one of the ways the Spirit works among us. Christians are those filled with the Spirit, those who live in the Word. They live in the Spirit, and the Word lives in them. They live in God because God lives in them. They stay close to God. They seek God. They want to know God and enjoy God and tell others about God. They want to obey God. They love God because they belong to God, and God belongs to them. They have been anointed by the Holy One. They know the truth. They have the Word of God and they have the Spirit of God. This is why we cannot choose between doctrine and experience. Both of them are ours in Christ. We need to love the truth. Our heads need to be full of the truth. We need to study doctrine. And we need to have a personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. So that our life is literally changed and we want to know and love Jesus. We feel, not just think, but feel Him and want Him and desire Him. Why? Because we live in Him and He lives in us. So we can't just choose experience. We can't just choose doctrine. We say both are ours in Christ. We should be the most thoughtful and the most affectional people on the planet as we let the Word of Christ dwell in us, and as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. False teachers will continue to deceive churches and Christians. False teachers may one day try to deceive you or our church. But true believers have been anointed by the Holy One. We know the truth. We have the Spirit, the anointing of the living God. So we will keep going with God. We will keep going with God's people. No matter what happens to us, no no matter what happens to your elders, no matter what happens to me, no matter what happens to Jared, no matter what happens to you, God will keep you. God will keep you. God will protect His people. He'll never let us go. Feeling lost can be scary, but remaining Living, abiding in Christ is the safest place in the world. As the hymn we're about to sing says, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. 
through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. For my life, He bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with Him to endless life, He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when He comes at last. He will hold us fast. He will hold us fast. For our Savior loves us so, He will hold us fast. Why? Because we know the truth. Because we have the Spirit. And if we have God, we have everything we need. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take your word and use it by the power of your Holy Spirit to renew our minds and soften our hearts. Thank you for giving us your word and thank you for giving us your spirit. Help us to let the word dwell in us richly. Help us to be filled with the spirit. Help us not to be led astray by the evil one by Antichrist, false teachers. Give us discerning minds. Give us humble hearts. And keep us, keep us till the end, Father. Whether that's a few days or a few decades, keep us till the end, we ask. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.